Rejoice. We've come to the end. We've come to the end of the sermon series on Revelation, so maybe that's cause for rejoicing because you're still wondering why are we spending so much time with this particular book of the Bible, which is frustrating, confusing, and difficult. So you can rejoice that today is the last Sunday I will be preaching on the book of Revelation, at least for the time being. But we also rejoice because the end is here. The end of time. The end of human history, the end toward which these things have been moving. In the beginning is the end. The beginning of our salvation, of course, is what we celebrate on Christmas. The coming of our Lord among us, God with us, as one of us, for us. The beginning of our salvation is on Christmas what we celebrate, but in our beginning is our end. And of course, by end, you may, you may recall that I've been harping on this for a while. The meaning of end in this sense means the goal, the thing that we are working toward. And so the end is near because as those of us who stand on this side of heaven and on this side of Easter, of Jesus' resurrection, we are indeed in the last days. Now, this last day, actually singular last day, is a relatively long day, right? If Jesus was crucified and resurrected around the year, what we would mark around 33 AD, 2,000 years is quite a long day for us to be in the last day. But of course, a day is like a thousand years unto the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. So we are living, yes, in the end times. We are living in what the early church called the eighth day. Right? You remember from Sunday school, right? God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. The eighth day is the day of Easter. The day of resurrection, the day that new life and new creation are being brought to their end, to their fulfillment. Because Christ has conquered death by his death and resurrection, and so he has called us to participate in that new life that he gives us. So we are living in the last day. More on that in a moment. I just want to recap a little bit from last week, because it sets the stage for where we are as we approach the end of this series. Last week we met, of course, those tremendous frightful um, beings, the red dragon and the beast, who is the servant of the dragon. And John is very clear, of course, that the red dragon is Satan, and that the beast is this awful creature who embodies all the wrong things, the things that stand in contrast and indeed in opposition to the things of God. And John says, how do we know the beast? We know the beast by the beast's number, 666. 666. And I suggested that six is the number of fallen humanity, of a sinful, broken, wounded people who fell sway to that early temp that first temptation by that great serpent, that dragon, who leaned into the ears of our human forebears and said, Did God really say? Do you think God really means it? I think you can take things into your own hands. You're, you seem like smart enough people. Go with your gut. Follow your heart. Do what you think is right. 
Of course, that same temptation is repeated today in our own lives over and over and over again. You see, we are created in the image of God, and as I said, numbers are important in the book of Revelation, and the number seven is the number of wholeness and holiness. It's the number of the covenant. And so six is the number of that fallen humanity. We are created in the image of God, but we haven't been able to reach the end to which we have been created, to be reflectors fully in the fullness of our humanity to reflect that love and imagehood of God. So to triple that number, 666, I don't mean mathematically triple, I know 6 times 3 is 18, but to number, to number it 666 is to indicate not only fallen humanity in our individual hearts and minds, but to show the brokenness of humanity in the institutions that we build. It's not to say these institutions don't do good things, schools and politics and all those things that we have built, but it's to indicate that they too are fallen, that we are all caught up in this mess of sinfulness altogether. We try to save ourselves. We put really good effort into it, and we are very confident that we'll be able to save ourselves, but the number of the beast indicates that despite our best efforts, this is not something that we can do on our own volition. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save humanity. We cannot ensure that the end of history is avoided. And I suggested that the beast, we like to project our own insecurities, our own sinfulness, our own self-righteousness onto figures that we believe would make a good candidate for the beast. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, Elon Musk, you know, it can be any of them. But the reality is the beast resides in the hearts and minds of each and every one of us, where the darkness has taken hold of us, that place where lies and resentment, the place where those evil deeds that we think about doing, that we want to do, those deep places of temptation, the power of the beast is fueled by our common and shared brokenness. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. In fact, the darkness hates the light. Anytime the light shines in the darkness, the darkness recoils. It's painful to be exposed. But the thing about this grand battle that happens in all of Revelation, described as a cosmic battle... That's as big and as wide and as long as the universe itself, that is as big and as wide and as long as human history itself, is also a battle in our own individual hearts and minds. But it's not that light and dark, love and fear, God and Satan are somehow on equal footing. They're not. The victory is already assured. The battles may be lost in our own hearts and minds, but the war is already won. Because God and Satan are not on equal footing, God is triumphant and victorious. One of the sections of Revelation that we didn't read was the image of Jesus coming as a victorious warrior, riding on a white war horse. His robes are white, stained with the blood of his defeated enemies. But Jesus does not do battle against flesh and blood. Jesus does battle against the principalities and the powers of darkness, of the dragon and of the beast. 
He wants to uproot and destroy all that stands in opposition to life and love and light. So the battles sometimes may be won, sometimes may be lost, but the war is already done. The Lamb is victorious, and this is what John wants us to understand with Revelation. And sometimes with Revelation, we get lost in the details of these horrific events that are being described by John. We think the end is truly near. We look around on the news and in the television and on the newspaper and the computer, and all we hear is a war and plague and environmental degradation and famine and abuse and all these awful things, and we think the end must be here. We fall into that apocalyptic mindset. And there's something about this kind of apocalyptic mindset that the end is near, right? We make fun of kind of the person with the sandwich board or the, the placard walking around, the end, repent for the end is nigh, and we think, wow, look it. That's this sort of kind of religious fanaticism that people fall into. But if you think about it, it's something that is easy for all people to fall into. This worry that if I don't do the right thing or vote the right way or give my money to the right cause or say the right things, that the end is nigh because of war and plague and environmental degradation and famine. The end is nigh, but I can save the world. The end is nigh, but we can save the world if we just put our collective energy behind it. But that's a lie. It's a lie that's born of this idea that the world is ours to save. We are not called to save the world. We are not qualified to save the world. We like to think we can save it. But as I said, the saving of the world has already happened. That victory has already been achieved. Now, that's not to say that as Christians, we don't have a responsibility to be light bearers in our world. We speak out against war, yes. We seek to feed the hungry. We seek to clothe the naked, to care for those who are orphaned and widowed, the stranger within our gates. But we are not called to save the world. We are not called to change the world. We are not called to fight the world's battles. Because the world's battles are always going to be a losing cause. We are called to stand with that great host of witnesses that we meet time and again in Revelation, the martyrs. The martyrs who died precisely because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't trust in the world. They didn't trust in the political leaders to fix all their problems. They didn't trust in their own ingenuity to be the solution to the world's problems. They worshipped the lamb who was slain. They were willing to die for their faith. They were willing not to change the world, but to die for the one who has already saved the world. You see, what will happen in the last judgment, and it's a scary thing to think about, but as Christians, it's not this doomsday scenario that we often have. The last judgment will reveal that God's justice, not human justice, the human justice that can be a good thing but is often lacking, God's justice, the justice that seeks and sees and understands the depths of human hearts and minds, that God's justice triumphs over all injustices committed by his creatures. In the end, we see that God's love is stronger than death, that God's light is strong, stronger than darkness, that God is victorious.
On this third Sunday of Advent, we celebrate what's called Guadat Sunday. Rejoice. We rejoice because we know that the end is near, that we are living in that eighth, last, and final day. But we rejoice because the image that John has given and was told to write down for the churches is an image that Brian read that is profoundly beautiful. It's the image of God coming down to earth to be with and among his people. We have this image of the heavenly Jerusalem adorned as a bride coming to meet her bridegroom. Christ coming to be with us, among us, for us once again. So as we celebrate the mystery of the nativity of God among us on Christmas, we do so with joyful anticipation of his second coming. His second coming where he will usher in his final victory, where he will establish his heavenly kingdom, his political rule, his care for all people, where there will be no more hunger or death or crying. A famous monk once said, joy is the echo of God's life within us. Joy is the echo of God's life within us. As Christians, we are called to be a joyful people in the midst of a world that is constantly worried and fearful about war and plague, about the destruction of the world, about famine. We're called to be joyful in the midst of that. And if we can't be joyful in the midst of that, we should ask ourselves, has the light and life of God really taken hold in my life? Now, joy is different than happiness. Happiness is something that is fleeting. Happiness is something that is fickle and that can be um, you know, easily supplanted. But joy is deeper and more abiding. It's a trust in God that God has done all these things. Joy is a willing to be persevering. It perseveres despite all these terrible things we see because it says, deep down we know that God is in control. I might not see it all the time. I might not understand it all the time. I might be going through something difficult in my life, but I know that the world will not steal my joy because that joy has been placed there by God. So our calling as Christians amidst a world that is fearful and anxious about its end is to be a people of faithful perseverance and joy. We endure with courage and fortitude because we understand the joy of God that comes to, rin, to live within us. So we do rejoice because the end is near and the end being near is good news. Because as we look to Christmas and see Christ as he comes to meet us, we long for that day when he will come again and restore all things to their rightful and proper order. And he invites us to be part of that kingdom, to participate in his joy, to participate in receiving his light and his life. It's what the Eucharist is all about, a foretaste of that heavenly wedding banquet maybe not as exciting as we would want it to be. We probably, in your own lives, you've been to pretty good wedding parties, and maybe the Eucharist seems like a bit of a dull affair. But it's meant to restore within us the light and light of God, 
God's life working in us to restore that joy to us. Again, more than just mere happiness or exuberance, but this patient, burning love that is enkindled in each of our hearts that we are called to go into the world to reflect and share. So let's not change the world. Let's not save the world. Let's not fight the world's battles. But let us fight against the darkness that creeps in our own hearts and minds, against that beast that so easily rears its ugly head with envy and resentment and hatred. But let us find that peace in knowing that even when the battle is lost, the victory is already won. Rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice.